This Backlog Life presents Game Boy, A Legacy in Four Acts. Greetings, and welcome to this exciting inaugural episode of This Backlog Life. The purpose of this episode is to celebrate the life and times of Nintendo's classic portable gaming system, the Game Boy. This show will be presented in the format of four acts. The first act will cover my personal memories with the portable system. The second act will talk about the facts and release of the Game Boy. The third act will detail many of the peripherals released throughout the course of the console's lifetime. The fourth act will go into greater detail on an often forgotten and overlooked Game Boy-only video game. We hope that this episode of This Backlog Life will be both entertaining and informative for you during this time. Act 1. Memories The earliest memories I have of the Game Boy were, ironically enough, due to girls being generous enough to share their systems with me. When I was very young, my family and I visited Las Vegas, Nevada for a family reunion of sorts. Many of my cousins were there, and I hardly knew any of them. One of my female cousins actually had the old brick Game Boy that she was showing off to my older brothers, neither of which had a Game Boy at that time. The system was one of the most beautiful things I had ever seen. I had grown up with an NES in our living room, and my babysitter had a brand spanking new Super Nintendo that I would play for hours on end, but this Game Boy, sporting the same gray sleekness of its console older brothers, was something else entirely. Imagine actually being able to play a video game on the go! You could take it with ease to another room, outside while climbing a tree, or even on a family vacation. I was instantly hooked. The game she was primarily letting us play was The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. This was hardly the first Zelda game I had ever experienced, but it was pretty groundbreaking in how I was experiencing it. I spent the majority of my playtime hacking away in the screen, filled with bushes, trying to max out how many rupees I had. Did I have any clue what I was actually doing, or any idea of the grander narrative at play in the game? Not at all but the mechanics were so tight and easy to understand that picking it up and playing felt like second nature at the time. This first experience with the Game Boy would certainly inspire me to someday have my own. This dream of having my own Game Boy wasn't immediately fulfilled, however. I had two brothers ahead of me who didn't have their own Game Boys, so, of course, I wasn't exactly highest on the list for receiving a super awesome present like that, nor did I really have any financial avenue for obtaining the funds I needed to get one. Thankfully, I had next-door neighbors instead. The lady that lived next to us was grandmother to two girls around my brother's ages. We would sometimes go over there so that my brothers could hang out with them, and I would come along because my brothers were watching me while my parents were out and about. This meant that while they were talking about whatever it is that older kids talked about, I got to partake of the Game Boy systems and games that belonged to the girls. This wasn't just an ordinary Game Boy setup, however. These girls clearly had money, because they had basically everything Game Boy a kid could possibly want. Beautiful plastic cases that protected the sacred portable, clip-on lights that would illuminate the dark screen, more batteries than I knew were possible to obtain, and pretty much every popular game that existed at that time. It was absolutely enviable, and I couldn't help but wonder what kind of criminal activity they must partake in so that they could afford these priceless artifacts. The majority of my time was spent playing Tetris, naturally, 
but I dabbled in pretty much every other game they had. Super Mario Land, Final Fantasy Adventure, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Spider-Man, Kirby's Dream Land, Kid Icarus, and basically every other popular game under the sun. I had hit the gaming jackpot. Alas, I never did get to obtain my very own original brick Game Boy until well after its time had passed. I quickly moved on to the flashier and more colorful portable with the Sega Game Gear. I had instantly learned as to why exactly the Game Gear was the less popular handheld. Still, I did get to experience many of the classic Game Boy games through the use of the Super Game Boy, which was a cartridge that allowed you to plug in Game Boy games and play them on your TV. This was a magical experience in and of itself, even if it did have limitations. But that's another episode entirely. Act 2. Just the Facts. The Game Boy was first released in 1989, first in Japan, then the US, and then to Europe. It was an 8-bit portable game console put out by Nintendo. This wasn't Nintendo's first foray into the portable world, however. Their Game & Watch series had already found popularity in the 1980s. This was, instead, a dedicated console in its own right, allowing for the use of cartridges to play different games instead of relying on built-in software. The design of the Game Boy certainly takes more aesthetic cues from the very American Nintendo Entertainment System, itself a primarily gray console, instead of the Japanese Nintendo Famicom, which was more red and white than gray. You could really see it as more of a natural spin-off of the um, NES American lineup instead of its own thing. The plastic felt like you were holding an NES controller, albeit bulkier and with quite a bit more weight thanks to the four AA batteries you had to slot into the system to get it started. The green dot matrix screen was certainly eye-catching, if nothing else, and the traditional D-pad and the A-B start select buttons were almost perfectly placed on the front of the system to allow for a certain familiarity for those who had already experienced the NES. The Game Boy was an instant success, and that might have been in large part due to the popularity of Tetris. Although it was not an immediate launch title in Japan, Tetris did launch alongside the Game Boy, both separately and bundled together, in the US and Europe. This fact alone probably resulted in many, many sales of the system. Not only was it a fun game in its own right, but the ability to link two Game Boy systems together using the game link cable to play multiplayer Tetris was a pretty huge gamble Nintendo made that paid off in spades. While the Game Boy was technically inferior to other handhelds at the time, this slimmed-down approach was helpful for the longevity of the batteries. This helped the small console to gain a sizable lead in popularity, which in turn helped get more games on it, thereby perpetuating a cycle that Nintendo was only too glad to capitalize on. Within the first weeks of release in Japan, an astounding 300,000 Game Boys were sold, depleting the entire country's stock. The lifetime sales of the Game Boy and its predecessor, the Game Boy Color, have sold more than 118 million units around the world. The original brick Game Boy is typically the image that pops in people's heads when they think of this system, but there were actually quite a few iterations on the hardware over time. In 1995, Nintendo released a line of Game Boys with colored cases to match the quote, play it loud, end quote, advertising campaign that was going on simultaneously. In 1996, the very popular Game Boy Pocket was released, sporting a slimmer design and needing only two AAA batteries instead of the four AA batteries on the original model. The Japan-only Game Boy Lite was released in Japan in 1998, which provided a life-saving backlight to the Game Boy screen, thereby fixing the dark screen issue that had plagued the original model. No longer did kids have to rely on a goofy light attachment or the passing illumination of streetlights in order to play their Game Boys in a car at night. 
but only in Japan. The Game Boy's reign dominated for many years, but eventually a successor had to rise up. The Game Boy Color was released in 1998, sporting a sleeker design and the ability to play cartridges in a glorious 16-color palette. The writing was on the wall for the original model at that point, with only a few games being released afterwards that were even playable on that old system. Even still, it is fondly remembered by many as being one of the best portable systems ever released. Act 3. Peripherals. The Game Boy was a portable console that was surprisingly rife with peripherals. Whether official or third party, they were a standard part of the Game Boy experience. The main peripheral that people think about with the Game Boy would have to be the Game Link cable. This allowed two Game Boy systems to be connected together in order to have a shared gaming experience. Tetris was a notable example of this, allowing two players to compete head-to-head and see who was the better Tetris player. The Pokemon games also took advantage of this feature by allowing you to trade the little pocket monsters that you caught in your game with a friend. This type of connectivity was novel at the time and brought multiplayer into focus with portable gaming. A weird peripheral that I never quite understood, though, was the screen magnifier. By clipping a magnifying filter over the screen of your Game Boy, you could purportedly enhance your gaming experience by seeing a better field of view. This never seemed to work for me, however, and typically left me feeling nauseous after extended play. The fish islands effect never really seemed to achieve its intended purpose of expanding your view, and the accompanying glare that you would get even if you thought about exposing it to light made this peripheral more trouble than it was worth. Still, it did help to keep scratches off of your Game Boy screen and offered a layer of protection there, so I can't knock it too bad. The light attachment, however, was a game changer. Functioning exactly like a book light, this handy little peripheral allowed you to play your games in the dark. While this may seem to be odd for kids today, the Game Boy did not come with a backlit screen, and playing in the dark was an extensive chore if you wanted to keep your game time secret from your parents, or if you were on a long road trip and your parents yelled at you to keep the internal car lights off at night. This was an absolute must-have peripheral, in my opinion. The rechargeable battery packs were also essential if you wanted to game for long periods of time. AA batteries were not cheap if you wanted actual quality and longevity, and going through four AA's within a week was a big no-no for my parents. Stealing the batteries from the remote control was also frowned upon, so I always had to be careful with my battery rationing. The rechargeable battery packs, however, helped alleviate that weekly cost, even if they did not have the capacity to let me game for the same amount of time as true AA batteries would allow. In a time before rechargeable batteries were the standard, this was an absolute treat when I had to borrow my brother's Game Boys. The Game Boy camera has to be one of the oddest peripherals ever made. While not a peripheral in the technical sense of the word, this cartridge-based software was basically a digital camera accessory for your Game Boy. Not only did it have a smattering of built-in minigames, including, in my opinion, one of the most addictive shmups I've ever played, but the camera functionality allowed for some of the most fun, user-generated content I've ever seen. Photos you took could be edited and doodled on, fundamentally acting as a prototypical Instagram. In many ways, it has grown into an art form over time, with many budding photographers enjoying the limitations so as to produce some amazing photos over time. The Game Boy printer went hand-in-hand with the Game Boy camera. 
The printer was connected to the Game Boy using a link cable and allowed you to not only print out photos that you took with your camera, but it also allowed you to print out pictures from some of your favorite Game Boy games. For example, Pokemon Pinball had a function that allowed you to print out the high score list from your game, while Super Mario Bros. Deluxe for the Game Boy Color allowed you to print out special banners that you unlocked during the game. The thermal paper included had an adhesive that allowed you to use your printed images as really awesome stickers, letting you show off your achievements and photos on your Trapper Keeper or lunchbox at school. This doesn't even scratch the surface of all the peripherals that were officially and unofficially a release for the Game Boy. It just goes to show the versatility of the system, as well as highlighting the needs that many people had when gaming on the go. If you enjoy crafting a Frankenstein monster of a portable system together, the Game Boy should be the first console that you experiment on. Act 4. For the Frog, the Bell Tolls. As we end our exploration of the Game Boy console, it would be ideal to focus on a particular game that is only available through said portable. The challenge is choosing just the right game, however. With hundreds upon hundreds of titles to choose from, how does one pick a single game out of that vast quantity? The game that I want to end on is actually only officially available in Japan, although a brilliant fan translation was crafted not too many years ago. The game I am talking about is called The Frog for Whom the Bell Tolls, the Japanese title of which I will not even attempt to sound out due to its lengthy nature. This game is unique in that it has set a standard for game development on the Game Boy that was capitalized on for The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening. Indeed, this game's engine was actually a functional prototype for how Link's Awakening and the Oracle games would eventually turn out, albeit with some notable changes. The plot summary from Wikipedia is as follows. Quote, in a land far away, the two princes, Richard of the Custard Kingdom and the game's main protagonist, who is the Prince of the Sable Kingdom, have shared a friendly rivalry since they were small children. They often compete, although it usually ends in a tie or a close win. In fencing, however, Prince Richard is always the victor. One day, a messenger arrives from a small neighboring kingdom, warning the princes that the evil King Delarin has invaded the Milfuel kingdom and captured the beautiful Princess Tiramisu. In yet another boastful attempt to best the Sable Kingdom, Richard grabs a boat and rushes towards the kingdom. The Sable Prince is left trying to catch up. While on his journey, he and Richard, along with others, are transformed into frogs in an attempt to reveal the true happenings in this kingdom. End quote. Truly a unique story for our time. Not only do you transform into frogs, but snakes as well. The transformation mechanic was actually fundamental in many of the puzzles you had to overcome, because each transformation had its own rock-paper-scissors-style strengths and weakness. The human form had the highest strength power in exchange for versatility. The frog form has the highest jump power and can eat insects in exchange for being weak to snakes. And the snake form can wiggle through tight areas and talk to other snakes in exchange for not being able to attack or jump high. Skillfully swapping between these three forms is an important skill that you develop throughout the course of the game. The combat in this game takes place in a different way from the similar-looking Zelda games, however. Instead of active combat where you are swinging your sword at an enemy, you enter a battle phase as soon as you touch your opponent, with much of the combat being hidden underneath a comical dust cloud. You do not actively participate in this battle, but passively watch as your character engages the enemy. As your strength dwindles, so does your opponent's, and whoever lasts longest is the winner. 
If you fail, you will find yourself back at the previous hospital used, much like how you would find yourself back at a Pokemon Center if your last monster is defeated in Pokemon. It is a strange choice for combat, but surprisingly deep, given that it takes into account your health, stats, and equipment in comparison to your opponents. The quirkiness of this game cannot be underplayed. It is a very funny and self-referential title, similar in tone to Link's Awakening and Earthbound. Your main character isn't exactly a beacon of morality and virtue, wanting to at first throw his royal clout and money around at the situation in order to solve it as quick as possible. His motivation at first is to primarily outdo his arrival, Prince Richard, but he soon becomes entangled in this adventure and has to learn from humility in order to save the princess in the end. Along the way, you'll encounter thieves, witches, evil snakes intent on roasting the Frog Kingdom for supper, mechs, and even a not-so-subtle Nintendo knockoff company. What more could you possibly want? Unfortunately, given the Japanese-only nature of this game, your only choice for playing it is to purchase a Japanese Game Boy copy, or import a Japanese 3DS and download it from their eShop while you still can. Thankfully, it is not a terribly expensive game to obtain, and getting the English patch to work is not too much of an arduous task. What you will receive for your troubles is a gaming experience more akin to the point-and-click adventures of the 90s than perhaps a traditional-feeling JRPG or action RPG. Your mileage may vary on how much you enjoy it, but the experience will certainly not be forgotten. Thank you once again for listening to this episode of This Backlog Life. I hope that you enjoyed celebrating the Game Boy as much as I enjoyed talking about it. The music you heard at the beginning of this program was called Empty Nest, which was an OC remix version of popular Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening songs. You can find a link to this remix in the show notes. The sound effect you heard throughout the program was the initial startup noise from the Game Boy itself, a sound effect which has no doubt ingrained itself upon the long-term memory of many millions of gamers. This episode was written and narrated by myself, Wesley, the host of the Henshin Dad podcast. You can contact me on Twitter at Henshindad and listen to my podcast at anchor.fm forward slash Henshindad. This Backlog Life is hosted by the Backlog Breakdown Podcast, hosted by the illustrious Nate McKeever and Josh Broccolo. Until next time, please make sure that you keep beating down your backlog so that they can keep breaking down the benefits.